this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. I forgot my part. I'm sorry. <laughs> See, now you're laughing, so you can't go in. Who are you? This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. I mean, it's not like we don't do this every week in every exactly week. the same way. Every week. It is like For when several you, years now. Correct. It is like when you're standing up in front of the congregation, and then all of a sudden you forget the words to the Lord's Prayer. Oh, my. Which yes. is... That has I, happened several times. It happens because it's so familiar that all of a sudden you start questioning what you're doing. And I just remember oh, there was this guy. So when I was in seminary for one summer, I worked at this um, localized Habitat for Humanity in Appalachia and Harlan, Kentucky, actually with my husband, though he was not my husband at the time. And um, there was, they had a board and there was a pastor who was on the board and he was actually the local Presbyterian pastor and his name was Fred something. I can't remember. It's just as well in case someone knows him and is actually listening. Anyway, I was like 22 and I knew everything, right? So nothing has changed. And I remember they asked him to close in prayer. And so he, you know, he prayed an extemporaneous prayer and then he invited everyone to pray the Lord's prayer with him. And in the middle of it, he like stumbled, like he just forgot the words. And I, in my little jerky, know-it-all, 22-year-old, nobody loves Jesus, like I love Jesus self, was just like, oh. How could he? How could he just dead inside like what a terrible shell of a human like I just had so much private and then contempt for him and um and then <laughs> then here we are you know I just am now closing in on the age that he was although I'm I mean he was even older than I am and I just understand that you just whatever you make mistakes you forget things you don't I don't know and I'm just so embarrassed for my own spiritual immaturity in that moment and how self-righteously I judged him and yeah that's what I think of when I start to introduce this podcast in the same way that I always do and I'm like I don't what am I saying what's the name of our podcast happens to the best I don't know anyway welcome (laughs) what's astonishing you well, uh, the other day I saw an interview with Viola Davis, the mm-hmm. star of the new movie, um, The Woman King, and I have not seen the movie yet. Um, I'm not a huge moviegoer, but I want to see this movie. Uh, I've noticed online there's quite a bit of controversy about this movie, um, and I want to respond to something. What's astonishing to me is something that she said in the interview, and I'll get to that. Let me work my way to that. Uh, For those who don't know, the movie is about uh, a group of women in the African tribe of uh, Dahomey. And um, the tribe, let's see, it would be located now in what's known as the country of Benin uh, in Togo. And it has a real complicated history. And if you you listen to commentators online responding to the movie, um, people are saying it's it's Hollywood wokeness, it is um, people rewriting history, but the actual history of this empire, this nation, is, is complicated. So they began as a, a vassal state of um, the Yoruba people, and they were oppressed, and at some point, they won their independence, their freedom, and their mentality was never again. And so they became a militaristic state empire. And there's a group of women called the, what were they called? The Mino. The Mino. They were, at first, a group of elephant hunters. And as elephant hunters, they were strong, they were courageous, they were strategic, they were organized, and they eventually became uh, the king's palace guard and then a military force on their own. And when Europeans encountered them, um, the French, the English, especially the French, they called them Amazons. Uh, But the word, uh, and that's where we get the Mm -hmm. idea of an Amazon, which is so interesting uh, because uh, now when Amazons are pictured, for example, the whole mythology around Superwoman 
Um, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, that's it. Yes, Wonder Woman. She is a daughter of a Greek god or mm-hmm. goddess, right? And so uh, then when the Europeans encountered these women, they were um, like beasts. You know, mm-hmm. they were not human. Um, but these women were warriors and they were um, uh, defenders of the king and defenders of their country. But the Dahomey Empire was was pretty violent and what people are responding to is the violence within but they're not looking at the entire history so on the one and and they're 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 caught in something on the one hand they are surrounded by other empires other kingdoms uh, i should say that were larger stronger more advanced in terms of military than them and so they felt threatened and then when the Europeans showed up, um, the Europeans were engaged in the slave trade and they sought to protect themselves by trading with the Europeans to get European weapons to protect mm-hmm. themselves from, right? And so there are some online saying, oh, well, they, they, were, they were just complicit in the slave trade. But no, there's, there's a strange irony here, mm-hmm. right? So the, these, these people who were... Uh, seeking to protect themselves, engaged in the slave trade, and eventually they were overcome by it when the French um, mm-hmm. colonized the area. But so, so there, there's this group of, of women, uh, the Mino, um, and the word means our mothers. Uh, they, they were these warriors. And so the movie seeks to depict uh, this this group of, of warriors. And so Viola Davis was being interviewed and she said something that struck me. Um, at the premiere, her daughter was there and I think her daughter's 12 or 13. At the end of the premiere, she said her daughter hugged her and said, Mommy, I'm so proud of you. And she said to her daughter these words and this is what got my attention. She said, when someone tells you you're beautiful, the only thing you owe them is a thank you. And in that moment, because she had been talking about um, the treatment of black women throughout history, mm-hmm. I think it was Malcolm X that said that black women in, the Mer- in America are um, uh, the, the most um, mistreated people mm-hmm. in, in the country. And she was talking about standards of beauty and black women that struck me when she said that to her daughter uh, because in that moment I realized how men use calling women beautiful or saying women are beautiful how that is and I'm, ne- and I'm, I'm astonished and embarrassed I've never seen this before how that is manipulative it is um, objectifying dehumanizing it is a, a way to express power over, like we get to say who is beautiful and who isn't. It can um, put women in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. And even though there, there are times when it can come from a very sincere place, in that moment I was just struck by how often, the, the times when I've said someone is beautiful and it's just mixed with um, sexism and misogyny, mm-hmm. and this this movie I think is going to be um, something we look back on in terms of how we see black women, not only in this country but around the world. But anyway, that's what's what's astonishing me, and it's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, so interesting. I I have not seen it yet either, and I I don't know if I will just because I don't go to movies and. I really do not um, see any m- movies that are violent, and I'm not saying other people shouldn't. I'm just saying generally I don't, although I do feel um, somewhat compelled just because of the weight that this particular film is carrying. Um, and just lots of people pointed out that I haven't seen the film, um, but when a movie like... Apocalypse Now or Platoon or Saving Private Ryan gets made. Um, there's no p- 
pushback or even Game of Thrones, you know, Correct. there's just there there are people who are allowed to tell violent stories and to tell stories where violence is nuanced and multifaceted and then people who are not. And so um, and I think, you know, Viola Davis has been talking about how she's been trying to have this film and production for like 15 years or something. And so just, you know, how few films there are that center the black stories and um, what what unhealthy pressure that puts, puts on a film to be representation to be representative of the entire black experience, you know, across Africa the African continent and the diaspora for all people well, in all places. And, and part of a, Part of our problem is that we have a very limited understanding of African history, mm-hmm. right? So when we think of the continent, we simply see Africans. We see melanated people. We see black people. Like in this country, we have some emphasis on the word some sense of the, the connection, the cooperation, the conflict also between various native tribes, like we know about right. the Cherokee and the Shawnee and, uh, and, and various tribes. But when it comes to the continent, we just know Africans. And right. so there is a whole history of different kingdoms and tribes being in conflict and in cooperation with one another. And we just don't understand that history. And so what happens is that when we think about Africa and Africans, it's often simplistic and negative. Well, and I think we just try to tell a simple story. And so the simple story is this was a, quote, primitive, quote, savage, quote, undeveloped land. And then civilized, quote, civilized people came and brought the gospel and brought technology and brought economies. And all of those things are just on the facts, not true. Um, and then as we just begin, like just begin to wrestle with the legacy of colonialism, one of the ways that we want to release the tension from the story, from the history, is to say, hey, there were black people who were profiting off of this yes. chattel slavery too, therefore white people who were involved and white nations who were involved are absolved. And I think that this is just really important to recognize that um, this is a, this is a deeply anti Christ movement of humans seeing other humans as objects instead of people created in the image of God. And we grieve the ways that all of us, have been formed by it. And also just to recognize, I think, kind of a meta-narrative about humanity, which is um, people who experience trauma and abuse often repeat that trauma um, themselves when they come to a place of power. And so you see that, I mean, maybe evidence of that here, and you see it in, you know, the Hebrew people when they come into the promised land, then you know, enslaving others and building the temple with slave labor. I think there are people who um, wonder, look at the way that modern day Israelis are treating Palestinians and the way that they have um, Israelis are healing from the trauma of the Holocaust in multifaceted ways. And so having this very... um, reasonable need to have land where they will always be safe um which is not which is not an unfaithful thing to want but the way that that fear and trauma and need can in some spaces and in some people be used to justify um, brutality towards other people who are seen as threats or invaders or whatever. And I, I mean... And you can say the same for the Europeans who settled in correct. what became the United States. Many of them Fleeing were, oppression. Yes. And, and then... Became oppressors. Right. And, and I think you see it in people who suffer abuse as children and then grow up 
to be abusers. And I read a really interesting article by a scholar named Stacy Patton, and she was writing about how she understands Tyler Perry's Medea um, franchise that, I mean, it was just really fascinating because she was saying, and and I'm assuming from what she read that this is based on parts of his own story that he has shared, that he suffered abuse as a child um, at the hands of women in his family. And then she, um, as a scholar and a clinician, a media studies, you know, she sees him re sort of taking back his power over the woman, the matriarchal figures who abused him through this character and the way that, and it's just very interesting. And that's why, you know, healing is such an important part of becoming fully alive in Christ and being able to sort of really look at all of the nuances of our stories from the safe ground of being forgiven and accepted and freed by Christ and having this new identity that is not transactional and is not threatened, which gives us the safety to be able to see the parts of our stories where we have been wounded and where we have wounded others and to say, you know, Lord, where are you leading me into a new thing? Because as I read scripture as a meta narrative, you know, that's where I, I see you know, that God is always trying to um, show people a way of being human that was really only experienced in the garden (laughs) and lost in the fall. And then God keeps trying to show and bring us back to know this is what humanity looks like. And this is what, um, this is what worship looks like and this is what true power looks like and this is what goodness looks like um and that you know vulnerability is actually freedom and and we have such a hard time seeing that revelation because we know what we know (laughs) and what we know is you know these broken and sin-filled institutions and these powers and principalities that are luring us away from the invitation that we receive in Christ to come and follow down the narrow way and um, to let go of our lives in order to find new life in Jesus. And that's just so deeply countercultural. And I think it especially is difficult for us when the institutions in our day have found a way to sort of idolize and accommodate the revelation of scripture to say, no, no, this is about propping up these institutions and it's not about radical new life. And it's not about, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb and it's not about, um, you know, they will never harm nor destroy on all God's holy mountain that, that violence is redemptive as long as it's enacted by Christians with good reasons. Um, so anyway, I, I think, I mean, to me, that just seems part of um a really important part of the story is to say there that there the human history isn't simple (laughs) yeah my understanding is that one of the things that um, therapists psychologists who work with uh, trauma patients do is make them feel safe enough to revisit the trauma because Mm -hmm. if you can if, if you don't feel safe, then the trauma, uh, you'll just keep living out certain patterns, certain habits. And you'll you'll do the things that you needed to do to survive. Correct. Even when you're no longer in danger. Correct. And if um, you can feel safe, then you can interrupt those patterns. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think you're exactly right. One of the things that should be happening in our faith communities, in our churches, is this idea, this this reality, this experience of feeling safe because I'm in Christ, rooted and grounded. Um, I'm reminded of that hymn that says, safe and secure from mm-hmm. all alarms, right? The things that would All other ground me. is sinking sand, yes. right? So I, I am safe. I am safe, even though there are things that um, uh, oppose, that would seek to threaten me. But in Christ, I really am safe. Um, I, I've been listening to conversations between um, Africans in the diaspora, especially uh, the U.S. and Britain and, and those on the continent. And one of the, the hardest things for us to hear as, as black Americans is, is, is for 
um, Africans to say, um, you all don't see how you are acting like new colonial power when you come here. You want to recreate the America that you know just with your face on it. Um, and it, it, it's really hard to hear that, but it makes us see our own trauma. Well, and that's, pain. you know, that's the central story of when God keeps sending the prophets and to the nation of Israel and saying, like, you've become like the nations, you've become like the nations, you've become like the nations, and you're, you're worshiping their gods. And that is, I think, yes, calling out a physical practice of bowing down at altars, but what, what we worship shapes our values and our behavior and who we become. And so the the problem isn't that God is so insecure and God, you know the problem is God is saying you cannot worship the nations and be, without becoming like the nations and you are not you know I'm not setting you up as my favorite because I like you better than everyone else. I'm setting you up to be salt and light. I'm setting you up to be the vehicle through whom all nations are blessed. I'm setting and, and you're becoming the thing that you are supposed to be an alternative to. But I think we do that, you know, over and over again. Um, and if we could just see that at the heart of the feminist movement, at the heart of the anti-racist movement is a calling to all of us to see how we are bowing down and being shaped by the powers of uh, patriarchy and white supremacy. And I think the the hard thing is, is like when you are a victim of those things, it's really easy to see that they are antichrist. But when those forces actually give you pleasure or power or things that on the surface feel good to you or make you feel secure, it's really hard to recognize that they are still demonic, right? And that's why, you know, the key to that is relationship with God, but real relationship with um, people who are not experiencing these powers in the same way that you are, because then you, you look at the person across the table with you and from you and they share their story and you go, wow, well, something that is this causing this much pain to my brother or to my sister... I can see now it's unmasked. And when I know that the kingdom of God is about mutual flourishing, then even if something has the illusion for flourishing to me, if it causes the suffering and oppression um, and, you know, takes abundant life from my siblings, then it's not, you know, it's not of the Lord. And so um, I think, you know, that's really the lens. That's the problem when we have communities where, everyone we know and everyone we're interpreting um, scripture and following Jesus with has basically the similar life experience to us. It's really hard to see the ways that we're being shaped by the powers and principalities around us. Like I, you know, someone I deeply love, a woman in my life um, was talking about her frustration with the Me Too movement. And um, this person is older than me and um and she was saying this me too movement is just all it's all ridiculous it's all overblown it's all garbage because I was in the workplace in the 70s and I was never sexually harassed and I was like that's so interesting that your visceral reaction is because this wasn't true for me it's not true for anyone mm. and I think a lot of times particularly as white people because the truth of the ways that certain people that we love are suffering, but because that truth is so ugly and so painful, it's just really tempting to think like, no, 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 this isn't happening to me. So that's how I can know that it's not really happening to anyone or it's not really happening to anyone who matters. Right. And you know that, I think that's a really hard thing to say. Like we have to be able to feel so secure in the love of Jesus that we can look at the, real fallenness of the world and face it um, and not deny it or or soothe or numb ourselves from that. So, Well, um, just to wrap this up, I'm, I'm going to see the movie. I'm excited to see the movie. Um, 
again, even though I'm not a, a, a great movie watcher, uh, I'm excited just because it depicts um, a time in history that we often don't see in movies and told um, by black people. Um, and I would encourage anyone, whether you see the movie or not, to do some research, just study some of these African tribes because they are fascinating. It's not just this continent called Africa. No, it's it's the Ashanti, it's the Mandinka, it's the Dahomey, it's the Awe, it's the Zulu, right? Study these groups because they have fascinating histories. Right. And I think it is helpful to be able to say, look, it is some of our narratives we have made artificially simple and that it's not a it's not as simple as saying this one racial group is a monolith or this one racial group is guilty and this one racial group is innocent it's just not no matter how i mean for us looking from those of us who are following jesus can just say hey i understand that it's true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and so I don't need someone to be a perfect victim, <laughs> and I can know that there can be things about me and my history that are deeply admirable and good and glorifying Christ, and that doesn't mean there aren't also things in my personal life and in the story of my ancestors or my um, cultural background that I revere that there aren't also things in that that are deeply troubling, and you know, one doesn't cancel out the other, um, and just sort of living with that nuance and tension is really difficult, but it drives us straight to Christ, which is where we need to go. Yeah, so. that's good. So what's astonishing you? Well, um, I guess I, I too have something that is both what I'm thinking about and what is astonishing me. Um, so I have a friend who I actually have known for years um, since my first church in Boston, fourth pres in Boston. Um, and her, her name is Ann Russ, and she has been a um, a pastor, a congregational pastor in uh, Arkansas for a long time. And then um, probably in the last, I don't know, five or six years, time goes so fast, um, moved with um, her spouse to New York City and started kind of a virtual church, really just a really interesting um, premise, and particularly um, trying to create a space for folks who wanted to be part of the Christian tradition, but their local communities were not welcoming or were too toxic for them and sort of saying, this isn't meant to like replace in-person community, but sometimes those just aren't available mm. to us. Um, so anyway, she has this um, uh, church uh, called Doubting Believer and it's all online. And it's a great name. It is, right? Because <laughs> um, it, it really just like confuses us right from the very beginning, right? And it's, <laughs> it's honest. And it's right. And it's just true. And trying to say right from the beginning, hey, if you have doubts and you have fears and you have lapses and starts and start, like you you belong here. And, and you're you do welcome. not have to pretend. Right. You don't have to pretend otherwise. And like faith always accompanies doubts because otherwise, as Anne Lamont says, it's certainty. And this is not. Anyway, so she, I, I really enjoy um, just what the Lord does through her ministry in general. Um, she's great. You should follow her. You should subscribe. She has a lot of um, content that she makes available to people and churches for free. It's great. Great, great, great. Um, but she wrote a post that's actually kind of unusual for her, but because of, you know, because she's not anchored in a local congregation, she does a lot of stuff um, like parachurch stuff and does a lot with the denomination. She's part of our same tradition, the PCUSA. Um, and so she just kind of has a, um, you know, airplane view of some of the big trends across the country and you know she'll be gathering at conferences or leading things and meeting people from all over and um so she just sees some ways um some things that are not i think sometimes when we're in a local church we just feel like we're, you know our heads down and we're in our context and we think that everything that's happening is unique and she is just at a place where she sees like wow you know i'm talking to this pastor in pennsylvania and this pastor in california and this pastor in maine and there's there's real similarities and there are, I mean, every one of us is unique and every church is unique, but also there are ways that we are all just shaped often not even consciously by the denominational culture and identity that we have inherited. And sometimes we can't see it because we're like fish and it's just the water we swim in. So, um, so she wrote this piece and it is, it is, I, I just really want to say 
it is not true for me personally. Um, but I think that my church contact is, is, it is very unique. Um, and we have been through such a, a long and intense journey of transformation and have really had to lay down so many things and make so many sacrifices that we just, um, there's just a lot of things we're, we're just not very typical of, um, Presbyterian culture, but she is writing play, um, her piece, her most recent piece is called how not to lose a pastor. And she's just pointing out and she sort of starts that like, I talk to pastors all the time and like, it's bad. Like people don't realize how bad it is for pastors, how many pastors are just, um, really holding on by their fingernails and really suffering. And she was saying, um, that, she didn't, and she didn't name it, but there's a recent graduating class of a seminary in our denominational system where the whole class of seminarians graduated and not one of them went on to a congregational context. Um, and I think that's partly because there are not a lot of congregations that can support, um, a pastor. And, um, so newest pastors are expected to like moonlight and tent make and whatever. And people are like, Hey, I don't, I, I can't, support myself in that way. And also just because a lot of churches are just really not healthy. (laughs) And so a lot of people with seminary degrees are just wanting to do anything else but serve a local church. And I also think there's a lot of disrespect and dishonor for local congregations and seminaries. And I'm just say it like it's just there. Um, And the irony of that is astonishing, but I don't think that we hold those communities accountable enough for the ways that they implicitly and explicitly tell students that if you're any good, you won't go to a local church. But anyway, whole class, not, not one of them. Or that if you are good, you'll get a good church. Right. And the good churches are the tall steeple churches that are multi-site and multi-staff. And those people are not high, you know, whatever. So she's saying like, she's talking to church people and saying, these are some of the reasons that pastors don't want to pastor anymore. And I just really, again, not in my own experience, but like having been a pastor for 20 odd years now and knowing a lot of pastors and listening, I'm like, Oh, this is so true. Not for me personally, but for the ways that my colleagues are struggling and the things that we can say to each other that you cannot tell the truth about inside your church communities because you will get just hammered, like you will get punished. And so she names five things. Um, She says, congregational pastors are an endangered species. And if you'd like to keep yours, may I suggest a few things? The first one is holy ground, not hallowed halls. And she talks about leading a worship service where they were trying doing some creative worship. Um, and this was a worship service that was at, at a, at a conference. So it was mostly pastors who were there and they were in the worship series. They were trying to worship and help people understand like what the assurance of pardon and how joyful it should be. And so they gave everybody those little, um, like bottles of bubbles, like you get in a wedding. And at, they talked about like the love of Jesus is bubbling up and it's all around us when they announced the pardon and they encouraged everyone to like blow these little bubbles. So you could see it through the air and it was just fun and joyful and really cool. And she said, almost, she said so many people came up to her afterwards and were like, that was so amazing. And I could never do this. I could never get away with this because it's too disruptive and too messy. And she's like, are you kidding me? They're bubbles. So they're silent and they're soap and they don't even spill. And the fact that like, there's this, this reflexive in some churches, again, again, bless, not the Grove. Um, but this sense of like, whatever you do, you cannot damage the physical property. And she was saying like, there are too many people who feel like their church, you know, it's the stained windows and the unmarked carpet and the unmarked, you know, that's what makes it sacred space and not the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is sometimes is messy and is disruptive and is doing a new thing. Um, And I would add to that um, from the outside looking in, you see the role of pastor as um, one that is, quote unquote, in charge of the church. Mm-hmm. But when you're on the inside, you'll see that you're you're not the church's CEO. You're not the um, you're not running it. I mean, you're 
I'm, I'm well, it depends to, on. I think in a lot of evangelical churches, you are the church's CEO. I but I'm think thinking most mainline and mainline Protestant, churches, that yes. is not it. And Main, so yeah. there's a sense of many pastors that we don't have permission to be creative. No, I mean, I think one of the things they talked about in the transformation process is pastors and the mainline tradition. We are completely responsible, but we have no authority. That's it. And I think in the mainline church, people are so afraid of pastors becoming dictators that they overcorrect and basically see the rule, the role of lay leaders to be to control and contain um, and manage the pastor. Correct. And so you bring a pastor in and say, pastor, we need you here to grow the church and bring in new people and help us, you know, engage in ministry and help, you know, and then the pastor says, great, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And they say, no. And then they say, why you, you failed. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so that, you know, and she, she, she says that one of her things is live what you claim to value. Like you say, we want the church to grow and we want there to be young people in church. And then when your pastor says, okay, let's look at our budget and this is a moral document and do our, does the place we spend money match what we say our values are? And you say to the pastor, no, we're not changing that. And, or, and she says the one of the things she names is let go of dress code. She says like you, she says you don't would believe how many people come to me and say as pastors and youth directors and Christian educators, I get called onto the carpet all the time and yelled at because young people come to church and they're dressed inappropriately. The girls have holes in their jeans. They're wearing jeans. They're not wearing ties. They're, they're showing their midriffs. And she's saying like, you don't understand that if you have young people in your church, this is like such a huge gift. And if all you can do is look at them and see what's wrong with them, then you are, I mean, that's a huge problem that you don't even see that you have. And, and again, and we've talked about this before that you want people to come in as if they've already been formed by your community Yes. instead of sort of saying, Hey, we want to meet people where they are and be open to the fact that maybe some of the things that are normal for us are not healthy. And maybe also there are some things that are normal for us that would be really life-giving, but we don't like, we don't know until we meet people in relationship and accept them as they are. Um, and she was also the other, the other two that really resonated with me again, not in my own experience, but in just having colleagues that I love so much um, one that she she named was let go of the idea of seniority and this idea she said That's for huge. far too many churches operate on the premise that those who have been there the longest have a greater say in what does and doesn't happen even if what those people want is detrimental to the health of the church and its people and i would add and its mission worshiping communities must hold one another accountable for toxic or unhealthy behavior even if the person is a founding member of the congregation the idea that someone can get away with being harmful or hurtful simply because they've been sitting in a pew for the most years has to go and i think that's very true in a lot of presbyterian churches again not mine but this idea that like if you're new come in sit on the back bench we'll let you know if we want your contribution like we'll tell you where to work and once you have earned respect and a place we might let you have some influence after 30 years i mean may, and like you think i mean some people are probably listening to that and thinking we're exaggerating nope no and i think particularly in the charlotte region and i know it's not only here but we have churches that are family churches so there are five or six families whose ancestors founded that church and someone can come in and be a part of that church for decades and still they don't matter because they're not a jones they're not a smith and you know and they're told that in in lots of explicit and implicit ways which is so counter to the gospel, but it's so true. And just this idea of like, well, you know, what happened was wrong. Like, you know, someone in the church walked up to a young person and said, you did a bad job leading worship today, which has happened. And people are like, well, that's just how Tom is. You just got to understand. You just got to tell that young person, no, (laughs) but we do that. We feel stuck and that's normal. And when things are normal, we don't question whether or not they're healthy. And I think to be able to say, the amount of time that someone has been in a community is not, doesn't make them less valuable or more valuable. 
Um, which is why it's easier often to go to a larger church, a mega right. church, where um, you're you're one of many, and a lot of people are new. Right, and at least there aren't all kinds of unwritten rules and hidden processes. Yes, you don't need to be sponsored. You don't need to, you know, and that that's a real thing. I mean, sometimes I look at these churches and I'm like, oh my gosh, I recognize this culture because I was part of a sorority in college, and I know what it's like when you're rushing people and you want to welcome them in. You want to be really friendly to them. You want to make them want your community, but you may or may not want them back, and you sort of. Um, we called it and again like as a sorority it's fine like that's I mean I whatever a sorority is not a church <laughs> and so it is a membership organization and those are the rules that everyone knows when they walk in and you can debate whether or not people should be part of them but it's honest what is dishonest about a church is when you tell people everyone is welcome here and we all belong here but Whosoever really will. Right, but but that's not really how we actually operate and run, and that happens a, a lot. And I think it's not that someone should be able to walk in the door and say, I'd like to lead the youth ministry, and you go, okay, come on in, right? I mean, they're obviously, you want to have, you know, good boundaries, and you want to have discretion, and you want to give people a chance to know and be known, but this idea that if you're new, we'll let you know whether you have anything to value to offer or not. And we'll let you know which parts of you are acceptable to us and which parts of you are not like that's just really formed by the culture, not by the kingdom. Um, and then the last thing, and I think this is really true and connected to your first statement is um, treat church staff like members of your faith community, not the help. And I don't think people recognize if you're, in a mainline church, and I know can speak of the Presbyterian church, I don't think that people recognize how normalized it is and how we justify it under the name of boundaries or whatever to treat the staff as if they are the help. You know, that line, like they're just like family, but this idea that like, obviously it is important that pastors have good and healthy boundaries. And obviously it is important that pastors understand that they are there to serve the community and the community does not exist to serve them. But also it's really important that pastors are seen as actual human beings and are part of the community as well. And, you know, there's just so many pastors who have 95 bosses and have no agency and no authority and I can't tell you the number of stories, especially during COVID, like a pastor would get sick and the church would get mad at them and no one would bring them a casserole. No one would come visit them that, you know, people would just be saying like, you know, how dare you not come visit us while you have COVID or, you know, and so I think just this idea of, I, I mean, I think it goes back to like being willing to understand that it's more complicated than we want to believe it is that your pastor needs to both be a servant leader who pours into the community and needs to be part of the community. And you're going to, it's going to be messy and you're going to have to figure out what that looks like, but to treat your pastor like, well, we paid for your time. And so, you know, bump you if you have needs and, you know, that's really hard. And I don't think, I don't think that very many, um, people like well-meaning people of faith who grow up in a church or in a tradition, like things are just normal to you and you never, it never even occurs you to you to ask, is this healthy or is this faithful? Yeah. It seems to me that this also really brings us back to the why of the church why does the church even exist? What is the church's mission? One of the things that you and I encountered in the Transformation Project uh, in Charlotte Presbytery was that um, when you stop and look at the church, when you stop and look at the congregations that we serve, the vast majority of the energy of the congregation was focused inward. Mm -hmm. It was about the um, members of the church and I'm using this language intentionally, 
enjoying their church. Mm-hmm. Right? It wasn't about the Great Commission. It wasn't about making disciples. It wasn't about mission beyond the campus of the congregation. And so in that sense, uh, we have trained uh, a generation or more um, to think of the church as an institution that exists for them only and as and, and pastors uh, who exist for them. Right. Your pastor is your chaplain mm-hmm. and exists to give you spiritual care on demand when you need it. And the way you can tell whether your pastor is good or bad is how do you feel about them? Yes, and, and which is really a um, consumer mm-hmm. model. And so in times like these, it's so difficult for congregations to make a shift to mission, outreach, pastor as leader of a mission, um, because that demands being open to things, experiences, ideas, situations that don't feel good. And I think like to understand, and some of this is, I mean, not to let pastors and church leaders off the hook, like for a long time, we've told people like our expectations of you are to show up and to pay your tithe. And so then people are like, great, this is like a country club. Like this is like the private school. This is like whatever. And so membership should have its privilege, right? Like we haven't taught people, um, they haven't taught people the great commission. We haven't taught people to say like the kingdom of God is here and in our midst and, and all of us have a unique role and there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy in the church. And I think like, this is the problem and it just sort of builds and compounds on itself. Like when churches don't want the pastors to be part of their community, then they get a pastor who says like, okay, I'm not part of your community. And then they get this very hierarchical, like invulnerable, show no weakness kind of model. And then they go, well, wow, this feels like a very detached space where I'm not known or cared about. And I feel like my pastor is just here for the money. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you won't let them be a human in this role. You don't want, you know, and when we have Um, denominational resources explicitly telling pastors you're not allowed to be friends with anyone in your congregation. And then we wonder like, well, why are these congregations toxic? Well, I mean, what other kind of relationship is going to be healthiest ground to build, like to bear fruit for the kingdom, like patron client? Well, I'm like, what is the alternative to the consumer model if it's not relationship and friendship? And I think we want to say like, well, let's just make it like, you know, a a local church version of a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever. That's not what we are. Like we have a role that is inherently ambiguous and there are bright red lines in terms of safety, spiritual safety and physical, like I'm not saying anything to unnuance those, but like we have to be able to show up as real people. And if the pastors who are leading can't be real people with strengths and weaknesses and limits and seasons, then nobody in the church is going to be able to have any of those things either. And that's why we end up with communities full of people who feel like they have to wear masks. Yes. And one of the things, if, if I'm being honest, if I'm being transparent in this conversation, one of the things I have to admit personally is that before the pandemic, you know, I saw myself primarily as one of those pastors leading mission, focused mm-hmm. on a great commission. And in many ways, that was true. What the pandemic has, and, and this whole um season of church decline, what it has exposed, revealed in me, is how much I bought into the consumer model yeah. and I didn't see it. And so the, the, the pain for many pastors, and, and I'm assuming that there are many like me, that the pain in this season is, uh, one, the grief of seeing, you know, oh, I'm part of the, part of the failure of the church I own. Right. And then now I've got to do the hard work of my own mental, emotional shifting um, 
and not just in thinking, but in practice. Like right. I've got to not only see things and think about things in a different way, I've got to do some different things. Right. And I think that is sort of really hitting at the big issue for me that for a long time, there's just been this unexplored assumption that we know what we would say a good church. I would say, let's be a little more precise in our language because when we say good, what we mean is faithful, right? Mm -hmm. Like we say like, well, a faithful church is a good church and we never have the conversation anywhere about what does it look, does like, look like to be a faithful church, right? Like, so we all have these assumptions that we're carrying around. And I would say the unexplored assumption that is actually explicitly named in certain spaces that I've been in is that a good church, a faithful church is a large church with a large budget, which is multi-staffed and is institutionally secure and has lots of power and influence in the secular community. And we say that's what a good church is. Um, and nobody is is having a conversation about like, well, whose definition of good is that? And how closely does that align with the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus lays out in scripture? And should the local church look like the kingdom of God, you're going to have to talk while I turn off my sad home sure. phone. <laughs> well, yes. And, you know, last Sunday I preached the story of Gideon uh, in which God uh, told Gideon he had too many men in the army going into battle against the Midianites. The Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. The Israelites had uh, 32,000, and God said that was too many. And then God whittled them, whittled them down to 10,000 and then to 300. And so if we're talking about faithful, you know, there are so many places in Scripture where we see that faithful is not about big, strong, wealthy, but about small, under-resourced that trusts the presence and power of God. Right, and I think that is why when we have to be fair and to complicate the narrative when we have people who say the church needs to be beautiful the church needs to be clean the church needs to not be um doing anything that might make us look foolish or trying anything that might fail that comes from our unexplored set of assumptions that churches will be respectable and powerful and have a you know a, an a a, an endowment, you know, like that, that's where we end up with this set of unwritten rules. And when no one challenges them, and frankly, honestly, when our seminaries are really interested in training people how to preach and training people how to do pastoral care and training people on like church history and theology, but not helping people then do the work of really integrating like, okay, now you have all these tools and they are good tools and they are necessary tools. But just having them in and of themselves doesn't mean that you know how to use them to shape and um, nurture a flourishing community, particularly if you've never had any thought about what a flourishing community is. And I, I think, um, you know, I was in a space recently where um, we were having, we have a seminary intern this year at the Grove, which is such a huge gift, and I'm really just so grateful. And I was in a training session um, to be the supervisor. And it was so interesting to me that, um, you know, it was a very, it was a very practical training session, just sort of about like, Hey, this is the paperwork you need to do. And these are the components that need to be in this, you know, essentially covenant contract. And, and that's all good. Like what we need clarity and, and direct communication and boundaries. And it's really good. And, um, but I mean, at, at no point, in the conversation, do we have any space for discussing like, hey, what, um, what is it about these particular congregations that make them good places for a person um, to practice ministry in a supervised session, right? Like, that's just not even a question that we have. And, you know, frankly, a huge determining factor on whether you are or aren't is like, can you pay the money? Um, 
that the person doing supervised ministry is entitled to. I mean, you know, so that's just a, like a practical component. So, so the places where these, where seminarians end up tend to be really narrow, um, unless you happen to have a seminarian who can, you know, forego payment, but there's certainly no money to make that happen in other kinds of spaces. And I also thought it was interesting that, you know, the, um, people on the call were talking about how difficult it was going to be because one of the, I actually think great, one of the great components of the program design is that every seminarian needs to have a team of folks in the congregation who covenant to meet with them quarterly, like maybe once every two months. I mean, it's not very much a team of three to five people who will be their support and be their mentoring team and pray for them and check in with them and support them and give them honest constructive feedback about what's going well and what isn't. And people were sort of saying like, Oh gosh, it's going to be so hard to find these people. And you know, can, is it appropriate to have the intern themselves find the people and you know, how often do they have to meet and how much time and all this. And I just thought like, is it so interesting that we don't wonder, (laughs) like, is this a good place for an intern to be? if the congregation doesn't have the bandwidth or see the value in meeting with a person who is doing ministry training and like pouring into them and praying for them. But just this idea of, I mean, like I think the design is well, I certainly understand the pressure of being a local church pastor and like, you know, having, having trouble, a struggle to, you know, make, but I just thought it's so interesting that like, we don't even stop for a second and marvel about like, Hey, what does this mean that, and what does it suggest about the appropriateness of our settings? If we're not interested in doing this, or if it feels like a burden or if it, you know, I, and it's just like a larger question about like, what makes a healthy congregation? What makes a faithful congregation? And what are we passing along to students without even being aware that we're passing it along to them in their training like what are we normalizing for them about how they just need to show up and do a bunch of work and since they're getting paid you know they don't so I mean I thought that was really interesting and as I was reading Anne's article I was also remembering um several years like several years ago um I was part of a um collaboration between local youth pastors that we would do this one big event um, every year with all of our all of our youth groups coming together and it was also a space where churches that maybe they didn't have a regular youth program but they could come and jump in and join and be a part of this and um, it, it was a 30-hour event it was an overnight event it was a um, sort of mission and spiritual formation thing and it was a big undertaking and it was I mean it was really cool and we would always um, look for a tall steeple church um, so one of the larger churches with larger physical spaces to be the host and people would always do it like it was never hard to find a tall steeple church who would host it and I and we were at this event um, at one of the tall steeple churches and it's one of those things where it's kids and there's like 150 kids who are here for this and there's lots of chaperones and everything, but it's a big event and it's going from Saturday morning through Sunday afternoon. And so in the, on Sunday mornings, like the people are going to split out and go, some of them will be here, but they'll also be at all the other churches who are sending youth. And it's kind of a, anyway, it was cool. But I, we had finally gotten the kids to bed at like 2 a.m. We were going to have to get up at like 7 a.m. Everybody was fasting. That was sort of the thing as we were fasting. So it was just a really intense time. And the youth leader of this church that was hosting us was 2 a.m. And we were going to bed. And she's like, I can't go to bed. I have to vacuum. And I mean, and we helped her, but we as youth leaders spent like two hours from like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. vacuuming all the spaces that the, this event had been in the day before. So like the classroom spaces and the common spaces and the whatever, because she was saying, if people come to worship tomorrow and it looks like young, like if they can tell that this event has happened, I'm going to be in big trouble. So 
it's important that we do this. It's important that we have 150 kids. It's important that we play the role but of it can't the, look like But it. it can't look like that. It has to look like no one has been here. It has to look exactly the same way it looks when Pristine. the building is empty the night before. And it is a expectation, a reasonable expectation to have a youth pastor not only, you know, show up at 6 a.m. on Saturday and get everything ready and be fasting with these kids and getting them to bed at 2 a.m. and getting up at 6 a.m., but we also expect her to vacuum the floors from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. or else this ministry can't happen and like bless her she was willing to do it because she wanted the ministry to happen and like pay to play right like you have to but I just think like sometimes we need a lot of times we need leaders in those communities who look and say hey is this a reasonable expectation that we have of members of our community who also happen to serve here and like is it really important that there are no crumbs on the floor during an event, right? Like I get that, hey, you can't just walk out the door and leave the place trashed, right? Like I understand that cleaning up is part of it, but this is was still going on. And can we just examine the culture and say, maybe it's good for some members of the community to walk in and be offended that there are crumbs on the floor and then for someone to have a an uncomfortable non-defensive conversation about like hey we we're hosting a youth event and opened our you know to let our kids learn about world hunger and spiritual fasting and justice and 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 well that story also highlights the tension the place of tension that many of us are in in these days where we're asking what what's the work what's the role mm -hmm. when many congregations are saying we want more of you we want more of your attention but we also see great need in the neighborhoods surrounding congregations and great needs to have our congregations step up in terms of technology and being online and all that good stuff so there, there there's lots to do and so we struggle with okay where exactly are we supposed to be putting our energy what what is the work for us what are we supposed to be doing and what do we need others to come alongside of us uh, to help us or to just take on? And yeah, and I think the other thing that I see in that story is there would have been plenty of people in that community who would have shown up on Sunday morning and said, oh my gosh, like, look, there were all these kids here and we hosted them. And I, I think it's great that there's crumbs on the floor because it means the building is full of young people who are learning how to integrate their faith, whatever. But, but will those people, when someone else... Who doesn't well, yet? Yeah, who no. doesn't yet have eyes to see it? You don't need to demonize them, whatever, to say like, "Oh, I understand this. Let me come alongside you and help you understand that." Or do you just say like, you know, "Good luck with that, Pastor." And so, That's in a huge. lot of ways, the people who are the loudest and make the most noise are sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the people who are the least spiritually mature in a particular area, and and they end up taking all the emotional and spiritual energy that the pastor has just to neutralize well, them. Well, to help me understand that, um, there, there are some people um, in the congregations that I've served that I just, for my own mental health, I, I labeled them anxiety carriers. Mm -hmm. So what they do is that they they listen to the people with complaints and they come tell you, well, so-and-so right. was upset about. And so when I... <laughs> After a long time, when I started to see the pattern, I could then say to the anxiety carriers or ask, well, what did you say back to them? Mm -hmm. Because you seem to, you, you're bringing me their complaint with the, assume the expectation that I'm going to now do something to neutralize it. Well, what did you say to them in right. that moment when they were complaining? And do like, you agree with them? Right. And to own my own part, like I want people to like me, right? And so part sure. of my own stuff is just being able to say, I have to be able to be misunderstood and be disliked That's so hard. and accept That's that so hard. and to accept that some of the people who don't understand me and don't like me are people that I like, right? Like I don't need to demonize them. I don't need to run them out. I don't need to assume so that they're right and I'm wrong, but I can just sort of say like right now we, you know, there's a, there's a, a mismatch like we are not in alignment and to sort of say okay lord this doesn't feel good but instead of trying to like artificially resolve it or to cover it over with anger to just sort of say like where what are you doing in this lord like can i can i face it can i seek you in it 
Can I trust that you can be faithful to everyone involved? Can I non-defensively listen? And can I tell the truth even? And can I not make assumptions about the person on the other side of the spectrum? Like I think a lot of us as pastors will often just be like, oh, well, that person can never get it. And we don't even try. Like we don't even try to engage them because we've decided that they, who they are is fixed. And that's pride on our part. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I think, you know, just life and community is really, really messy and God is in the mess, but we have to not artificially try to make it stable um, when actually sometimes pain and tension and, you know, we should be having conversations about what makes a healthy church and we should be having conversations about you know, what is our mission and what's most important and we have competing values and we can't have everything and what comes first and what comes second and what can we let go of and what do we have to hold on to? Those are all really appropriate conversations to have and people are allowed to to be in process as they discern what God is doing. So anyway, well, we need to stop talking. <laughs> so... Um, I am not preaching this week and you, because we have a guest preacher in, which I'm really excited about, um, Ron McClellan and it's going to be great. And I don't, and you're not decided on what you're going to preach this week, right? Well, you know, I'm thinking about, um, I looked at the lectionary text the other night and, um, it's communion this Sunday and there is one reading from first or second Corinthians that I've seen many times. I've never preached before. It's that, um, for me, that awkward place where Paul says, you know, the problem with some of you is that you eat and drink at the Lord's table unworthily. Mm. Um, and I'm like, well, what, what, what is that about? Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm considering uh, um, landing there and studying, digging, digging, digging into uh, that text to see what the Lord would say to the saints at Dorida that Church. That is some healthy spiritual discomfort. <laughs> I mean, that is really interesting theologically to say, like, if we believe that we are community founded on grace, then how how can we also be unworthy? I mean, aren't we all unworthily eating at the table? And so to really yeah, what, what is that about? get into that tension is really good. Yeah. yeah so. Well, thank you all so much for listening to us this week. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at Derrida Presbyterian, D-E-R-I-T-A, you can go to their YouTube channel. You can go to their um, podcast, which is on the Podbeam website. And you can go to their website, which is brand new, which is Derida slash faith site. I can't do it. I'm going to get it. Derida Church dot faith life sites, S-I-T-E-S dot com. I'm going to get it. There's no, it's stupid that I haven't it's learned that good. yet. I'm going to get Grace it. Grace abounds. slash faith life dot com. Dot no slash. <laughs> Wait, say it one more time since I just confused everyone. Derida church dot faith life sites. S I T E S dot com. Okay. I got it. Got it. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out um, the church podcast, which is uh, the Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And you can check out our YouTube channel as well. Yes, look for the green tree, the Grove Charlotte. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.